Or last week, if you were here fellowshipping with us, uh, Gateway Downtown, the community that makes up who we are, then you, um, then you would have learned a little bit more about the Trinity. And if you were still super confused about the Trinity, I hope you talked to Brian Pummel about it, um, because you didn't talk to me about it. Nobody talked to me about it afterwards. So either it made perfect sense, which I highly doubt, or um, hopefully you were talking about it with somebody else or even looking at it a little bit more yourself. But we looked at the Trinity. As we looked at how God can say he is pleased in his son. How does that make sense? As they were uh, on the mount and Jesus was transfigured uh, along with um, three of the disciples. And so this morning, we are looking at the text as they come down from the mountaintop. This is in Matthew 17, verses 14 to 20. And so we're going to read these verses this morning, so please stand with me as we read the Word of God. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let's pray. God, as our minds are opened a little bit more to the world and the evil that we see, and we see a little bit about how you are breaking that down through Sutisana and through people that are uh, passionate about bringing your word to those that are living and lifestyles brought upon them by evil. We do pray against that. We know that you are the only way that that's going to stop, just as we see you stopping a demon here in the text. And so, God, I pray this morning that we can learn from this, we can apply it to our lives, and that we can fall more deeply in love with you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, well, one of the churches that I worked with while I was on, in Rome, I did a, a stint for two years living in Rome, and I worked with refugees a lot while I was there. Uh, I worked with a couple different organizations, and one of the things that I did, I, I coupled with a church, and, uh, and with the church, we would always go Wednesday nights, and um, in this church, the pastor was very passionate about seeing Muslims hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he would go, some people from the church would go, um, a translator would go who spoke spoke Farsi, and so he, would, uh, he had actually converted while he was in Rome, and he would come along as well and translate to Farsi for, uh, for the people there. And they'd go to the train station late at night on a Wednesday and, uh, and more or less have a church service, as we might see it in the Protestant faith a little bit, with um, having prayer, having a time of singing and sharing the gospel. And so I would go, and I would, and I would join in with, with this pastor and with this church, and Wednesday nights... Um, always brought, brought out the crazies, I think you can say. Um, a lot of people lived there, but it wasn't just refugees that were displaced in the city of Rome. Uh, there were a lot of uh, just homeless Italians, homeless people as well that weren't, um, weren't refugees. And, and they would live here at night, and it was not uncommon to see stumbling. It was always very easy to smell alcohol 
to see karate moves being done to the air out in the distance was normal. It's not normal, but it was normal on a Wednesday night in Rome. And, and this time was always a, a, a spiritual battle, I would say. And so at one point, I, I felt called... Um, I felt called to a fast, and, and this fast ultimately ended uh, on a Wednesday night as, as I was there and, uh, and, and with this ministry speaking to people from outre- outlying people groups, mainly Muslims from um, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, um, Afghanistan. And as we were standing there, we'd usually start with singing, and people would gather around, maybe 10, 15 people, and then he would share the gospel, and it'd be, this would all be translated um, into their native language. And this, this night, this evening, I had felt um, that God was really telling me, you, you have to share today. Tell the pastor that you're supposed to share what you read this morning from my devotional. And, and so I told the pastor, I said, hey, I, I have a word to share. And so I shared the, the story of the prodigal son this parable. And I, I learned very quickly um, why Jesus spoke in parables. It was really incredible. I just started sharing the parable of the prodigal son. And the amount of people that were here doubled. I mean, there were maybe, usually there's 10, 15, there were 30, 40 coming just to hear this story that's full of grace and, and mercy and love and humility, repentance, acceptance, all this. And more people, I think, than ever were here hearing the word of God. And then after the parable was over, the pastor started sharing. He broke down the gospel. He started sharing the gospel explicitly to everybody listening. And as this happened, one of the guys that pretty normally you would see off in the distance came walking over to our group, and, um, and he was dancing, and he was making a big scene, making a lot of noise. Uh, he, he had just defecated himself. I would say that odor was unbearable. And most people that were keyed in to hearing the truth of Jesus were now ignoring that, and they were just looking at this guy, and they started laughing and making fun of him. And, and I saw him, and it just felt wrong. It felt like evil. It felt like somebody was just coming in to destroy these words of Jesus that had come. And, and so I didn't really know what to do. And, and I just told the guy, I said, hey, what are you doing? And he turned around, and he looked at me, and then he looked down, and he shook, and he just started laughing, and he turned around and kept dancing. And I thought it was strange. So I went over, and I touched his shoulder, and he shook, and and I said, you have to go. And so he turned around, he never looked at me again, and he just walked away. And he walked away, and I stood there wondering if I had just missed something. I wondered if I was supposed to cast out a demon. I wondered if he was drunk, or I wondered if he was high, and I didn't really know what to make of it, but he walked away. And, and the whole thing was so strange to me. And you see things like this in the Bible, and so I wondered, how does this apply to what I just lived, to what just happened to me? And so I wanted to talk to somebody about it, and eventually that, that summer I was back home, and my pastor from back home, he has been to Africa, and he has seen some incredible things. He came back to the church and shared some stories that I have definitely never experienced, and so I thought he'd probably be able to give me a good answer about what happened in this situation, but I didn't need to just tell him the whole situation, and I just found a question that I could ask him that I think would make sense, and then I'd be able to learn more about this, and I said, Pastor Larry, how do you know if somebody is drunk or if they're high or if they're demon-possessed? How do you know? 
And he answered. He didn't miss a beat, kind of smiling. He said, there's nothing worse than a high drunk demon. And that was that. That was his answer. And it really did suffice for me. This idea that whatever it is, if it's high, if it's drunk, if it's a demon, it's all evil. They're all bad. All of these things are taking people away from having an ability to think clearly and to see God for who he really is. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if you want to call it a demon or if, you're just, if you want to call it an addiction. These things, there are things in the world that are preventing people from finding God. And all of those things need to be prayed over. And all of those things will only ultimately be defeated by Jesus. There's evil. There's obviously evil in the world, even as we talked about this morning. So this morning, we're presented with a demon in the text. The first part of this chapter, we saw Jesus in all his glory as his humanity was almost peeled back as he was transfigured on the mount, reflecting God's glory. And now he comes down, he's presented with something evil. And we see him in perfect power and grace approach this. What I don't want us to do this morning is to see a demon-possessed boy and just immediately write it off and say, this won't apply to my life, or this doesn't make sense in our current context in America, maybe in other parts of the world. Please don't do that. This isn't just something that can't happen because you haven't witnessed it before. And so don't just credit it as something that might happen in another part of the world, but not here. Don't assume that a demon-possessed boy has to be completely different than somebody that can't stop gossiping, which I can do easily. It doesn't have to be completely different than somebody that can't stop lusting after things or after people. Paul Tripp is uh, a guy that I heard at a conference a couple summers ago. And what he was talking about with these graphic descriptions that we see of evil in the Bible, he says that they sit in the Bible and they are meant as concrete, specific warnings to us of the life-distorting, destructive evil of evil. So these things are meant as concrete warnings of how evil evil really is. It's an example of an innocent boy being demon-possessed, reminding us of how bad evil is. Because it's easy for us to not really see wrong in gossiping, because it feels good to know something that other people don't know. So sometimes we almost glorify that sin. It's easy to see lusting after something that we want to buy as okay, because it's beautiful anyway. Of course I should get that lamp. It's beautiful. But we forget sometimes, if it's done in lust, then it's still evil. And so these are concrete examples that we can learn from. And it's not a bad thing for us to be reminded, and to be reminded often, about the destructive nature of evil and the destructive nature of demons, and the destructive nature of the devil. So whether we see evil as being directly caused from demons, or whether we see it through addictions, I don't really care, as long as we see evil for what it really is. And that's evil. It always leads to death. It never leads to life. It's always dangerous. It will never end positively. It is always destructive. It is never constructive in your life. And so we can get caught up in the glamour of the things around us in the world. And it's possible that evil can even try to disguise itself as something good. And so for that reason, I think we're reminded and we're warned of how destructive evil can be with an example like this. So that leads us to the passage. Keep this in mind as we're learning this morning about how God removes evil. 
Verse 14, Jesus and Peter and James and John are coming down from the mountain. They just witnessed the transfiguration. They're feeling, I'm sure, pretty close to God after being on this mountaintop experience. And then they're immediately brought back to reality. They see how broken our world is because of sin. And the Gospel of Mark deals with this account as well. And I think in more detail than Matthew gives. So we are going to be looking at Mark 9 a little bit this morning. That's going to be verses 14 to 29. You can flip to that one as well. Uh, Maybe mark it in your electronic Bible. Um, But verse 14 of Mark 9 also gives a clearer picture of what they're coming into. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So it's not a different story, but I think it gives us a better idea of what's going on. Mark is pointing out that the scribes are here. The scribes are wanting to ridicule the disciples. They're wanting to find ways to make Jesus look bad. And so how about we go at the disciples that didn't go up on the mountain with Jesus and give them something that they can't deal with. So the things that we're looking at this morning, we're looking at the people involved, we're looking at the situation, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response. So first of all, the people involved in this are Jesus, his three disciples that are coming down the mountain with him, Peter, James, and John. And then we see the crowd of people are here. We see the scribes. We see the other nine disciples. And the last character, we see the man that is kneeling before them. The story starts with a comforting reminder that Jesus is never above your current situation. We talked about the Trinity last week and how God can say he's well-pleased with Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect unity And yet, despite the perfection of community and unity that they are in, they still choose to meet us where we are. God will still meet you where you are. Jesus will come down from all that shining glory and meet you in your present broken situation as he comes down the mountain. Those are the people involved. Next, we're looking at the situation through verses 15 and 16. Lord, have mercy on my son, the father pleads. For he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. The father comes before Jesus and presents him with the problems. The first problem is his child's agony, his child's suffering, the pain that his child sees. And the father is seeking Jesus that he might have mercy on his son. If you look in Mark 9, verse 22, it adds to mercy, it adds compassion Have compassion. I'm not going to belabor compassion. We've talked about compassion a few times now in the past few months. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of you actually know the Greek word for compassion at this point. Splachnizomai. I thought I was going to hear it yelled up. Splachnizomai. This is the same compassion we've talked about, the same compassion that the Canaanite woman was pleading for her daughter. And so the father is pleading for compassion on us. Again, the same thing we've talked about. The father is not only asking for compassion on his son. He's not only asking for compassion on himself. He's asking for it on us. And there is a big, deep unity (laughs) with being a parent that I don't understand yet because I'm not a parent, but I've been on the other side of it as a child. And I know that my parents praying for me is important. And I'd imagine... All of us, for each of us, it's very easy to realize we live in a sinful and a broken world. And my world is obviously sinful, it is obviously broken, I obviously need Jesus. But when you have a kid, it's hard to remember that they're also in that same world. And they need Jesus too. Pray for your children. Ask Jesus for mercy and compassion on your kids. 
We look at that, the situation, the first problem, the child's anguish here, the evil involved with the demon trying to kill his son, obviously evil. The second problem we see, verse 16, is that the disciples that had stayed behind could do nothing about it. The disciples are seemingly failing. And this is a disappointment because we had already read in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 and 8. We can bring that up. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. They've already been given this power and they're not doing it here. Shortly after this, in Luke chapter 10, we see that he sends out the 72 and they are casting out demons and they do it. So why aren't they doing it here? Why is Christ allowing his own disciples to fail? Why couldn't the disciples cast out this demon? I can't be exactly sure of why his disciples couldn't do it or why I can't always have every single one of my prayers answered. But I do know this, that it keeps me humble and it always brings more glory to Jesus in the end. Sometimes he does use his disciples to see evil destroyed. And sometimes he doesn't. And like we talked about last week with mountaintop, mountaintop experiences, we can seek a mountaintop experience. And we can be thankful when God gives us one, but we have to be just as thankful if God doesn't give us one. We need to pray. We need to seek to end evil. And we need to thank God when he does it, and we need to thank God when he seemingly doesn't, according to our own minds and what we see as success in a prayer in a situation. So these are the two parts of this situation that we see. And then after that, we're seeing Jesus reply. He replies to three different people here, three different things. His first reply is to the people. The people is the crowd, the scribes, and the Father. His second reply is to the demon. His third reply is to his disciples. So verse 17 of Matthew 17, Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. This is a response to the crowd, the scribes, and the Father. This is not a response to the disciples. We see his response to the disciples in verse 20. This is different. He tells the disciples they have little faith. But here he's saying in verse 17, this is a faithless and twisted generation. The faithless scribes who are living a self-righteous lifestyle, trying to earn their way to heaven. That's not faith. They're ignoring Jesus, the Son of God, and what he's teaching. These twisted scribes brought to the disciples a problem that they thought and hoped they couldn't fix so that Jesus would look worse. That's twisted. And the father here that is pleading to Jesus, as harsh as it seems, the father also is a part of this faithless and twisted generation. It's applying to him. You see, the father, he still has doubts. Verse 22, we looked at compassion is there. Before he asked for compassion, he says, but if you can do anything... Jesus, but if you can do anything, it's almost a challenge. You can see there's still some faithlessness here. And it's a challenge to Jesus, maybe. And it's reiterating this idea of Jesus' response, verse 23 in Mark 9. Look at that one. We have a quote within a quote here. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. That is a quote within a quote with an exclamation point. If you can, ha! What do you mean if I can? I'm Jesus. If you can? Are you serious? I imagine that's how he's saying it to this guy. 
All things are possible for one who believes. For one who is not a part of this faithless and twisted generation. It's all possible to one who believes. So what does it mean to believe? Believe here is pistuo. It's used hundreds of times in the New Testament. It's used in different ways, different verbs. To think, to be true. It is used to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence in. Pistuo is translated to mean believe, to commit unto, to commit to trust, to be committed to, to put trust in. Believer is used in all these different ways, this word. So believe, to believe is to commit to something that you think to be true. All things are possible for one who believes in Jesus and has committed their life to him. Even eternal life is possible. For it's always been belief that saves somebody. It has never been actions. We see this from Abraham. Romans 4.3 references Abraham. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was not that Abraham followed the rules or that Abraham was just going to kill his son, and since he was going to take that step in action, he's now saved. No, it was his belief that was credited to him as righteousness. John tells us this, chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Belief is what connects you to God. Belief in Jesus gives you eternal life. Belief in Jesus gives you righteousness in God's eyes. It gives you an ability to not live and be stuck in sin and evil. Belief in Jesus frees us from evil. So we see here, Mark again, verse 24. The Father admits, and he proclaims, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. The problem isn't you, Jesus, the Father realizes, The Father says, I realize that the problem is me. That's the grace of Jesus to allow the Father to see this, to see that there's hope through Jesus. I believe this is a confession of faith. The Father said, yeah, I have an unbelieving part in my heart, but you can help that, Jesus. The cry to remove unbelief is a cry of confession. The Father recognizes all of his hope is now in Jesus. And at this point in time, the Father has now converted The Father has committed his life to Jesus. The Father has passed from death to life. He's moved from being a part of a faithless generation headed to death to being a part of a faithful generation headed to life. The angels, I'm sure, at this point in time are rejoicing in heaven as they see a man come to faith. There's Jesus' first reply to the people. They need to believe. His second reply in verse 18 of Matthew 17 is to the demon. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Why is Jesus so beautiful? Because he did this for seemingly a stranger. The man believed after he saw Jesus, and Jesus instantly gives him eternal life, and he instantly heals his son. What did Jesus get out of this? What does Jesus get out of helping him? He's already complete in and of himself. He gets nothing. What did the father of this child get out of this? He got everything. He got salvation forever. He got a healed son. He was just a random stranger. 
Maybe you're just a random stranger in Cleveland. And so what are you going to get out of making Jesus your one and only and full treasure? You're going to get everything out of it. And Jesus is delighted to give you everything. Jesus is delighted to rebuke the demon, to remove the evil, and to bring glory to the Father. And so finally we see Jesus reply to his disciples. His disciples are wondering why they couldn't cast out the demon. So they're private now. They're not with the crowd. They're not with the scribes. They're alone with God. The disciples of Christ are seeking guidance from Jesus. They want to learn about why they couldn't do this. They're looking at themselves and they're wondering what they did wrong. And rather than them blaming Jesus and shaking their fist at Jesus and saying, why would you do this to me and make me look stupid? Instead of doing that, they're asking Jesus for help. And so Jesus gives them a reply. He tells them two things. First of all, it was your little faith. And secondly, you didn't pray. Yes, Jesus told the Father that he was a part of this faithless generation. And that faithless generation, because they are faithless, they were not able to see the Son healed. But it's not only them. You see, Jesus is also telling his disciples, it's also your little faith. So the fault was on the disciples, not only the wicked and twisted generation. And it's more important, I think, as a disciple, for each of us, it is important for us to worry about our little faith and to grow in our little faith than to only be wondering why others don't have faith. It's important for you to know your state as a believer of Jesus Christ. And it's more important to know your state than it is to get frustrated with those who don't necessarily know Jesus. Newsflash, sinners sin. It's a part of it. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have a heart to see that stop. We should. But that's going to stop as we grow in our little faith. I am not just going to tell somebody about Jesus just so they can go live with Jesus. No, I am growing in my relationship with Jesus as a disciple of Christ. My little faith is getting bigger. And as that happens, now those that don't have faith might see that in you. And they might grow in their faith as well. And even if it's just a mustard seed, just a little bit of faith, God can use that. You can be a mountain mover. You can see evil broken. You can see a demon come out of this child. You can see a battle with lust and temptation end. We can see a battle of human trafficking come to a close. With Jesus, as is possible, every bondage can be broken with Jesus. And then Jesus tells them, Mark 9, verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So if you're looking at a KJV Bible, keeping it old school, you might see fasting in here. That would be added. If you're in the ESV or most other versions, you're not going to see in Mark 9, 29 anything about fasting. You're not going to see verse 21 of Matthew 17 in your Bible, unless you're probably in the KJV, then you might. And so it's just been increasingly supported that that was not originally in the text. So it's not now a part of the canon. They've taken it out strictly due to historical evidence, not necessarily that it's wrong. But Mark does still point out that prayer is one of the things the disciples lacked. And can you imagine that, that the disciples are wanting to cast out a demon without praying? What are they going to do? How are they going to approach evil in the world? How are we going to approach struggles in the world without prayer? We need to pray. Prayer is important. 
And prayer, when we do this, when we approach a struggle through prayer first, it is me taking a step back, putting Jesus in front, and now moving forwards with Jesus. And it's not me trying to do it on my own. It's me recognizing that Jesus is here. I will still take strides, but I'm doing it through prayer. Prayer is active. It is not passive. You can take an hour in prayer and be just as exhausted as if you played an hour of soccer. It's hard. It's work. But we need to do it. We need to be in prayer. So in summation of all this, we saw the characters, we saw the situation, we saw Jesus' response to the three. The people, the demon, and the disciples. We learn from this text that evil is not only demon possessiveness, but that is a great concrete example of sin and evil. We learn that it's good for parents to pray for their children and ask for Jesus' compassion on themselves and their kids. We learn that sometimes we don't succeed as disciples because Jesus' plan is bigger than ours and him receiving ultimate glory is way more important than me feeling good and prideful about myself. We learn that conversion This experience of conversion happens through believing in Jesus. We learn that Jesus has control over Satan and his minions. We learn that as a disciple of Jesus, it's okay and it's good to be self-critical so that we can grow in our faith. And we're not going to accomplish anything for the kingdom of God without prayer. There's so much evil in the world. And when I see What's in the world, it's not just the distant world, it is right in front of us. It's here right now. And I hope that you see, even through what Sutisana is doing, that your world, that Cleveland, that all of this, it's a little bit smaller. That we can see it all a little bit more clearly. And that you know that there is evil, and there is bondage that needs to be broken, and it's only going to be broken with Jesus. So an application, if you have not yet chosen to believe in Jesus, please start your journey of the bondage breaking of sin this morning. Romans 10, 9 to 14. We're looking at a lot of believings here. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how can they call on him who who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him? whom they've never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? If you have not believed yet, there is now no longer an excuse that you haven't heard. You have now heard the gospel. You can make a decision today to follow Jesus, to believe, to give Jesus your heart, make Jesus your one and only treasure in life. And if you have believed, let's share this with people. Let's grow in our little faith that others might see your love of God and grow simultaneously along with you. Pray. You need to be in prayer. If you are a believer in Christ, your application today is prayer. Seek God. Ask God what you need to do 
in order to grow in your faith. Maybe you don't know your next steps. Pray about it. Ask God to reveal that to you. He will. Don't be scared if he tells you something that you might not want to hear. But trust in God that he will make it happen. Something that is so big that you can't even see how it's going to come to an end. Human trafficking. Pray that that will come to an end. Let's take steps of faith. And that's going to start with prayer, believer. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church, this church that is made up of people in community, growing in their relationship and love of you. I thank you that anybody can come and join in on this beautiful plan that you have given us and that we can all be in this together, all to the glory of God. Jesus, this morning we see your power breaking the bondage of sin and evil. And God, we want to continue to see that happening in Cleveland. We want to see people coming to know you, Jesus. We want to see this happen. We want to see an end to human trafficking. God, foster our heart for this. Help us pray for these people that are stuck in this situation. Father, bless Sutisana as they do this. And let us be a part of it through prayer and through supporting what they're doing. God, may we grow in our little faith this week. May we grow closer to you. May we understand your love better. And may we share that love with others that we run into. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.